Global Perspectives, a podcast series in the service of democracy, peace and development around the world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode on the European recovery after the pandemic, where we'll take a closer look at the European Union's new generation EU recovery fund. My name is Anja Richter, and it is my pleasure to be your host. The main focus of today's episode will be the EU's new recovery and resilience facility, as EU governments are presenting their plans on how to spend funds from this newly created instrument. I will discuss with European Parliament member Markus Ferber and Dr. Thomas Gstetner from the European Banking Institute, the structure and functioning of the facility, but also its political ideas and intentions. We will also explore why the creation of such an instrument was necessary in the first place. Back in December 2020, the European Union sought to send two key signals with the adoption of the Recovery Fund. Firstly, that member states are in a position to actively tackle the economic and social effects of the pandemic as a community. Secondly, that EU member states want to implement targeted reforms and investments in order to emerge stronger from the crisis. With a total volume of 750 billion euros, the Reconstruction Fund represents the largest investment program in the 70-year history of the European project. Together with the multi-year financial framework from this year to 2027, this means that over 1.8 trillion euros will be available over the coming years. Of course, many of the investments envisaged in this program are not required exclusively due to the consequences of the COVID-19 crisis. Some member states already experienced a period of economic weakness before the pandemic. Italy's economic growth was below 1%. Greece still had a weak economic base following the euro crisis. The debt levels of some countries were already reaching breaking point. Addressing current account deficits, high stock debts and dealing with weak economic growth therefore significantly narrowed many governments' room for manoeuvre. In addition, Due to sustained consolidation pressure several countries were under in recent years, they had been unable to make any significant investments in their healthcare sectors. This meant that in some cases, local hospital capacities were overwhelmed and ultimately led to the adoption of the drastic lockdown measures to control the spread of the virus, which damaged European economies. So apart from the ongoing pandemic management, the EU Commission's focus very quickly turned to considerations of what must be done to enable people and companies to not only recover quickly in the post-pandemic phase, but also to address structural deficiencies. The exceptional situation imposed by the pandemic has revealed the need for action and investment in administration, business and society. By prioritising future-oriented topics such as digitalisation, the transformation of national economies towards sustainability, but also investments in education, research and infrastructure, the EU wants to strengthen the socio-economic base in the medium and long term. To finance these enormous investments, the EU Commission is using the instrument of independent borrowing and common debt, which represents a radical political paradigm shift. For some member states, it even represents a breach of taboo. But how ambitious is the EU Commission's political agenda and how can it be implemented? To shed some light on this, I'm very pleased to now welcome two excellent experts to the podcast. Dr. Thomas Gstetner, President of the Supervisory Board of the European Banking Institute, 
a European financial think tank based in Frankfurt. And for a more political perspective, I welcome the chairman of the Hans Eidel Foundation, Markus Ferber, a long-standing member of the European Parliament and spokesperson for the EPP Group in the Committee on Economic and Monetary Affairs. Welcome to our Global Perspectives podcast. Hello, it's a pleasure being here. Nice to be here. Thanks very much for the invitation. Thomas, as a think tanker with great experience in the central banking sector, can you briefly outline the next generation EU plan, especially the recovery and resilience facility as its centerpiece? How does it work and what are the main goals and what timeline is foreseen for this implementation? First of all, thank you, Anya. So next generation EU is the EU's economic response to the COVID-19 crisis. It is a top-up to the EU multi-year budget and is worth 750 billion euro, from which 390 billion will be distributed as grants and 360 billion as loans. The biggest title within Next Generation is the Recovery and Resilience Facility, which is encompassing the entire loans and 80% of the grants. The funds from this facility shall focus on investments into clean technology, renewables, energy efficiency, and investments into digitalization. So looking at this, the recovery fund is about strengthening the future resilience and economic recovery, and it's less about mitigating the near-term shock of COVID-19. The idea is to support specific European policies and in this way, increase the competitiveness of European economies. So who is getting the money? The key part here is certainly the 390 billion in grants. If you look at the allocation of the funds in absolute numbers, Italy and Spain received the biggest share of the monies. Germany will also receive monies, but will be a net contributor to the facility. The idea of the fund is to increase the long-term growth potential of EU member states. This will also be good for Germany and its economy, which benefits a lot from the EU. The fund was installed because member states realized that the economic impact of the crisis was so big that it could have seriously damaged the European project. That's not in Germany's interest as the central European economy and its biggest member state. So how are the funds managed? It's another big point. Member states have to file recovery and resilience plans for the commission to approve. On top, the commission will conduct audits and checks to verify the monies are spent properly and that structural reforms are implemented. If not, the commission can intervene and stop payments. So conditionality applies. And finally, how is it financed? The Commission will finance the program via debt, which they will raise on capital markets. The borrowed amounts will be repaid over a long-term period until 2058. Repayments will mainly be affected by a member state's contribution. And in this regard, Germany is only liable for its own share of the budget contribution. That means there's no mutual liability of Germany for the other member states' contribution, and the overall liability of Germany's limit to about 87 billion euros until 2058. So, Marcus, the next generation EU recovery plan, as Thomas has outlined, seems to me not only an instrument to address the immediate aftermath or shock of the pandemic, but also to institutionalize a more ambitious political agenda of the Commission. As a member of the European Parliament, the EU's legislative body, What do you think are the political intentions and the implication of the recovery plan? Do you believe that it will be able to fulfill its purpose? Yeah, thank you very much, Anja. I think that is the key question. And you have to see the background as well, as we have been discussing 
financial aid to member states in and outside the eurozone for a long time ago. And France was proposing a special budget for reforms uh, inside the eurozone for years. And if you look now what has been established, it's a mixture of everything. On the one hand, there is a strong reform agenda behind it, as Thomas has outlined. Uh, secondly, of course, it is a question of recovery after the pandemic. And thirdly, it's, of course, an instrument with the idea to fulfill the political agenda of the European Union. As we have earmarkings, minimum 35% of the amounts have to be uh, spent for uh, the Green Deal which means a decarbonized economy in the European Union. Minimum 20% are addressed to digitalization. We have an increase of the so-called transition fund, the fair transition fund, which is used for those areas who have huge social impact by getting off coal mining and burning coal for energy, which is linked to Poland, for Romania and some parts in Germany mainly. Uh, though therefore, it's a mixture of all of these things. And hopefully it fulfills uh, what is said in its uh, frame, which is next generation EU, that it really delivers a benefit for the next generation. And as Thomas has outlined till 2058, it's not only the next generation who has to repay the whole amount of 750 billion euros, which is a huge amount. It's 0.8% of uh, GDP of European Union in prices of 2020. So only to translate it in, in some statistical uh, areas. Though therefore, these recovery plans are proved at the moment, whether they fulfill all these obligations and, of course, uh, whether they do not hurt the others. Yeah, if France makes a program which is good for France but bad for Germany, it will not be a recovery for the European Union. And that are a lot of criterions now we have to check as parliamentarians, as a European Commission and member states as well. To be very clear, we as legislative body, we will take care that we have this European added value and uh, that we have this uh, reform agenda not uh, hide it behind all the expenditures, but uh, being addressed in the various member states. Just taking a step back, I know we we're talking about the next generation and the future, but why was the recovery and resilience facility necessary in the first place? And what explains its enormous scale? The EU didn't react like this during the global financial crisis in 2008. Marcus, what, what do you think are the differences or the main differences between both crises that could explain this diverging approaches? I think number one is a learning curve. We learned that we can't leave member states uh, by themselves. And uh, as you have uh, spoke about financial crisis and economic crisis after 2008, um, we had a similar approach uh, that the national recovery plans got a kind of approval by the European Commission. But the financing was nationally and each member state paid its own burden. There was no instrument of solidarity. There was an idea of Barroso in these times, the, the commission president, to invent an instrument. He promised 60 billion, but not one cent at the end was spent out of this idea, which Barroso brought up. Honestly, the learning curve showed that we have to address common problems uh, together. 
And of course, we have to be more solid than we have been in the economical crisis. So that, I think, is number one of the main differences. Number two is, of course, uh, burden sharing. If you have to save rescue banks is something else, then you have to overcome a global pandemic. And as uh, Thomas outlined, that we don't have mutualized debts in the uh, recovery program. That was the main issue. Will we have mutualized bank risks if we start a European program? So everyone had to take responsibility for their own risks, which, of course, had the origin in national well or not so well functioning oversight structures. And therefore, if you look, uh, Ireland was the most hurt uh, country in the uh, economical crisis because it was easy uh, to run a bank in Ireland and they had to improve their systems properly. Number two was United Kingdom, which was at this time a member of the European Union. They as well had to improve the quality of their oversight structure. So there have been national problems as well. And now we have really a, a global issue, a European issue, and therefore it makes sense. So I think it's both learning curve and the different challenge we are confronted with. Thomas, with your banking background, uh, do you agree with Marcus's points or do you think there were other factors or differences that played a role? No, I would agree. I mean, but I think that the differences between the sovereign debt crisis and the COVID-19 crisis are quite fundamental. In uh, 2010, we've experienced a crisis which was largely based on asymmetric shocks hitting some Eurozone economies. Yeah? So these shocks were caused by macroeconomic imbalances like huge current account deficits or massive budget deficits. This time, the crisis is more of a symmetric shock, as Marco said. The, the, the COVID-19 crisis has been hitting all countries in a similar fashion. However, the effect was different. And this time, the shock was not due to policy failures in specific countries, but the pandemic, pandemic was clearly an external shock. In the sovereign debt crisis, some member states were losing trust by global markets. As a policy reaction to the loss of market access, these countries were granted loans from the ESM and the IMF. These loans were combined with structural and budgetary adjustment programs in order to deal with the issue of moral hazard. This was obviously not very popular in these countries. However, I think the results of all programs were pretty successful. This time, moral hazard is not seen as such a risk due to the different starting point of the crisis. So ramping up spending to counter economic impact of a recession based on an external shock, this is basically a textbook policy. We've seen that member states in the EU have implemented such policies on a national scale right away. Next Generation EU is a massive investment program on an EU level, on top of national programs. And I think the, the reasons for this are twofold. First, I think the economic policy in such a crisis is more effective and is higher leverage if it is coordinated, in particular, if you are in a currency union. Having a central spending program ensures best in economic coordination. And secondly, and you mentioned this in your introduction, some member states simply did not have the resources to spend the money needed to counter the economic slump. They already had, before the crisis, very high debt to GDP ratios, and therefore, next generation EU is also a form of solidarity between the EU member states, as Marcus rightly pointed out. But I think you also have to see it this way. Money from next generation EU is only one part of the deal. The other half are the structural reforms to be implemented according to the European semester. From the perspective of the net receivers of monies, 
implementing these reforms adequately is their form of solidarity with the net contributors in this case. So we've spoken about the external shock that has, of course, hit all countries more or less at the same time. And all EU member states have suffered from the impact of the lockdown measures. But many were already struggling due to different economic developments, as has been mentioned already. And whether they are members of the monetary union or outside the euro area. Thomas, which factors could explain why some member states struggled more than others, apart from what we've already talked about, lack of investment and high deficits? I think uh, if you focus on the currency union, I think there are several factors responsible for the different performance of some member states as compared to others. When the euro was founded, countries with different economic backgrounds were put together into a joint currency union. In very simple terms, in the north of Europe, you find economies which are more export-driven and were therefore better used to global competition. Additionally, in the Deutsche Mark bloc, they were used to having a strong currency. In other parts of the Eurozone, you find economies which are more internal demand-driven. And when, then, when the euro was introduced, it was largely based on the Deutsche Mark system. It means a hard currency. So some countries, which in the past were using currency devaluation to increase their competitiveness, were now left without this instrument. This difference in economic cultures also has effects on issues like collective bargaining and the relationship between social partners more generally. What happened then since the introduction of the monetary union was that some countries have increased their competitiveness massively through a process of wage restraint. That means wages were increasing for some time slower than productivity. This happened, for example, in Germany with other supply side reforms. On the other side, we had countries where wages were increasing faster than labor productivity. And in some countries, even productivity hardly increased at all since 1999. I think this is the problem that needs to be tackled. There are several quite good indicators which show the innovation capacity of a society, which in turn then influences productivity, quality of the school system, investment into vocational training, share of young people with a university degree, effectiveness of bureaucracy in the justice system, investments into R&D and the number of patents. If a country is lagging behind in such or other macro indicators, they need to address these issues with supply side reforms. This is obviously difficult and costs time and money, but next generation EU is supporting member states financially to make big investments to increase their global growth potential. However, um, adequate supply side reforms are necessary in order to raise the full potential of next generation EU, I think. Marcus, how much did politics or political leadership in some of the particularly hard-hit countries play a role that led to the situation? I think we have to remember the situation in March, April last year, and everything started as always in Europe. Member states thought they are able to solve problems better by themselves. We had a lockdown on, on borders which at the end hit the supply chain. So a lot of industries have never been closed by politics. It has been closed by the companies itself because there was no uh, access to raw material. But we did not hurt our industries. We hurt ourselves as well. The food supply did not work properly. The supply for medicine and medical equipment did not work properly. So the first lesson we had to learn was that closing borders is hurting us economically but it's not a border for the virus. The virus jumped over. Number two, a lot of member states, including Germany, thought 
uh, if they close the borders for medical equipment, for example, they've been better to address the challenges at the home country. But that uh, gave the impression for the most hurt countries with the virus, which was uh, last year, March, uh, Spain, and especially Italy. I think a lot of people can remember these horrible pictures from Bergamo, and it's still in my mind as well, that they thought, wow, where is Europe? Where is solidarity? We are left alone. And one of the point of origins for this uh, next generation EU is, of course, this impression there's no solidarity. And that's why Germany was so engaged to get a conclusion on this program during German presidency in the second half of last year. And that's why Italy gets the highest amount out of the program. Only to translate it, it's a political issue, it's as well a financial issue, because Italy will be a net contributor, although it is in general a net payer. Uh, but the explanation lay, lies really in the first month when we had uh, uh, corona in the European Union. But honestly, if you look to the second and the third wave, we see as well how different the developments have been. If you look to Czech Republic, for example, which was not hurt in the first wave, but was crucial hurt in the second wave and in the third wave, the things have changed inside the European Union, and therefore you, you see the learning curves of some member states or the non-learning curve how to deal with the virus, what we saw now in autumn, winter, and early spring uh, till now. And it's now more or less all European states, except Sweden, with their special model, where the rates go down. Sweden still has high rates, and that shows that if you go different ways, so as we're reaching the end of this episode, I want to look ahead and ask both of you a sort of two-part question that is probably on many people's minds. Will the recovery resilience facility become a permanent instrument for the EU Commission to increase its political influence vis-a-vis -vis the member states? And trying to learn lessons from this whole process or development, is there a necessity for a more stable European monetary currency union? including more capabilities or powers to act or enforce measures? Maybe, Thomas, you want to go first? I mean, to start with, uh, the recovery fund is a temporary program, but there are also people which are asking already now for such a recovery fund to be implemented permanently. I would be careful with this. Let me answer your second question first. I think the, the last crisis in the monetary union governance, a lot of things have happened since then, and it has become more stable. ESM has been introduced as a lender of last resort to the member states. We also have parts of a banking union with the ECB as supervisor, the SRB as a resolution authority, and the ESM as backstop uh, to the single resolution fund. What is missing is a European deposit insurance scheme, and the debate is very political. I think it is by and large accepted that we need some form of EDIS, at least for the big banks. However, the question is whether a further risk reduction and a break of the strong link of banks to their local sovereign should be achieved beforehand. Another element for me uh, is the capital market union. In the currency union, you need some form of risk sharing, so common shock absorbers in order to make the whole system more stable. Examples of other currency unions show that integrated capital and credit markets act as the most effective shock absorbers. The focus should, in my opinion, be put on them. Another element to absorb shocks are fiscal policies. This is largely organized by member states so far. In order to give member states in a crisis situation the necessary fiscal space, 
the Stability and Growth Pact was introduced to ensure sound fiscal policies of member states. If this principle is complied with, we would already now have a very stable union. However, even though the pact has ensured that member states in the years before the crisis have reduced their deficits, this was not enough in some cases. And then a central fiscal capacity is proposed by some. This essentially means fiscal transfers, to be clear. These are politically charged, as we have seen, for example, with the fiscal transfer system between the German lender. And I don't see central fiscal policies as the most important thing to be discussed after this crisis. I think we need a banking and a capital market union. I also think that the stability and growth pact needs to be adjusted to make it simpler, but more biting. However, what I think is a key element to make the currency union more stable is economic growth and competitiveness of Eurozone economies. That is a problem for member states if they don't grow. If an economy is growing, debt levels will go down, state revenues will increase, and the state will become more stable to fund programs in times of crisis. That's what's needed, I think. So, Marcus, Thomas said the debate is very political. So I'll give you, as the politician, the last word. Yeah, thank you very much, Anja. And I think that is the one million dollar question or one million euro question, whether we make a permanent instrument or not. And to be very clear, I, I fully share what uh, has been said by Thomas. It is uh, planned as a special instrument and it should be a special instrument. Number one, all the member states stay for their debts according to their share of the European budget. We have not yet the ratification in all member states. And if you remember the discussions, especially in, in Finland, in the Finnish parliament, there was not an automatic uh, support and it took a while that the parliamentarian support uh, could be granted. If you look to Germany, we had uh, some groups who went to the constitutional court. Thanks God, constitutional court agreed that Germany can join in. But one of the questions was, of course, is it a permanent instrument or is it a single instrument? And uh, if you look uh, carefully to the court's decision, that is on high importance. And Romania has not yet ratified. Um, Hungary has now ratified, so we have overcome one problem, uh, member state. Uh, Poland has not yet ratified. There are still some ways to go. And uh, number two, member states have promised that European Union will get new own resources. But if you look now what happened since a year the, when this promise was given by the member states, nothing happened till now. So you can't say Europe has to increase the debts, 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 but you don't give them um, resources uh, to refinance that. And it is refinanced by at the moment by contributions of the member states to the annual budget. Sorry, that is not a serious approach as we don't have the right to ask for taxes. We cannot even increase them. We have no taxes. Uh, there was the idea of a plastic tax or tax on plastics. Uh, that is not yet decided. Uh, there is a question of digital taxation or things like that. So there are some ideas for new own resources, but that has not yet been addressed. And therefore, as long as we do not have new income on the European budget, uh, we should not discuss more spending out of the European budget, whether it's by the budget itself or by additional debts. And on the European Monetary Union, if you look to the discussions a few years ago, and Edis was mentioned by Thomas, the national deposit guarantee schemes are proper functioning. This 
question is a little bit out of the scope. We will have a discussion now how to deal with non-performing loans as everyone is concerned after the crisis, which companies will survive, which will not survive. And of course, uh, as the Stability and Growth Pact is suspended till the end of next year, and Commission is going to start a discussion on the future of the Stability and Growth Pact in autumn by a public consultation. Of course, that is an issue which has to be addressed as well. What are the rules after the suspension comes to an end? So what are the new rules from 1st of January 23 onwards? And that will be a huge point of discussion as we have some member states, and I'm not blaming anyone, but it's not Germany <laughs> who want to get rid of the whole system. But as we have the experience from 2010, where investors said we will not borrow any cent to Greece anymore, and then Greece went bankrupt, we had to organize help and solidarity. We have to be aware that uh, the times of low interest rates or zero interest rates will come to an end and then uh, money is expensive again uh, in public debts as well as for private investors. And, and member states have to have the ability uh, to pay their debts back. So to increase debts because it's cheap at the moment is no solution and therefore that is not uh, the answer. On the other hand, of course, it's now the first time that European Union will be an actor in the global financial markets. And to ask uh, financial markets for 750 billion euros is on high interest by investors as well. And though therefore uh, it will be a success story, but a success story for as it is constructed at the moment. And you should not say, wow, that worked well. No, we can do it again and again and again. Investors will always look very carefully, where are they investing, who is standing behind, who at the end takes the burden and can they afford that. And therefore, it is now a good step in this special situation, but it shouldn't be the new normal. Then we are on the right track and we will have a bright future in Europe. Well, Marcus, Thomas, thank you both very much for joining our Global Prospectus podcast today, for bringing some clarity on the recovery and resilience facility, and for providing a political assessment of its intentions, its reach, and its potential longevity. All the best to you in Frankfurt and Brussels. Thank you very much, Anja. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. To our listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I certainly learned a lot. And if you did too, Please do share it with friends and family and subscribe to the series on iTunes, Spotify, Deezer or Amazon Music. There will be one more episode in this season before the summer break, but we will be back in the autumn. In the meantime, you can listen to all previous episodes on your preferred platform. My name is Anja Richter. Take care and bye-bye. Global Perspectives A podcast by the Hans Seidel Foundation